All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I'm Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And uh, yeah, we get to continue on in our third Sunday in Advent. Uh, any of you ever thought you were going to go one direction in life only to discover you ended up somewhere else? And I, I don't just mean taking a wrong turn while driving. Like you, you thought you were going to work one certain career and, and instead you ended up over here. Or am I not on? I am? I'm powered on. Okay, you guys hear me. I, I see my son over there going, no, D Salem, I'm old. I'm the one going deaf. You're, you're still young, okay? Uh, but, you know, you, you thought you were going to, you know, see certain things in life, achieve certain things, experience certain things, and, and yet things worked out very, very differently. Like some of you, you thought that by now you would be married. Some of you thought that by now you'd have one, two, or 17 kids. Some of you thought by now you would have visited 17 countries or speak 17 languages. And yet your life has looked very different. You've ended up in a very different place. When I was in high school, I began to think about not just college, but what life might look like after college. And I, I began to, you know, think through, like, what, what's wise? Because one of the things I wanted was to get married. And, and I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to win someone some woman over by my magazine cover good looks. I'm, I'm probably not going to, you know, overwhelm her by my comedic personality. Like, I, I've got to cheat somehow. And so I figure I've got to show her I'm responsible. And so to me, that meant not only getting the college degree, but getting the job, taking care of a dog, you know, like establishing that I can take care of myself and the world, which means I can take care of you. And I am so thankful that did not happen. Now, I did not become irresponsible, but I was 21 when Leanne and I got married. And by the way, my wife is at home uh, with a really nasty cold, so Leanne, hi, missed you here. Um, but she was only two months away from her 21st birthday. We were super, super young. Normally, I advise people not to get married that young. And yet, I can look back and see how God worked in a certain way that helped us get to where we are today. And, and so I was following an American template. I, I felt my plan was decent. It was wise. But God just took me in a very different direction. And I'm thankful for that. The reason I'm starting my sermon off this way today is because this is what happened with the sermon this week. I had originally planned to go one direction with this sermon. And yet it ended up going in a bit of a different direction. Now, I'm going to share with you where I was originally planning to go because I don't think it was fully bad. It's just, if I had only gone the original direction, I, I think we would have missed something beautiful. I think God has something greater in this spiritual landscape for us to see. And so my hope is that not only was today's sermon a little bit different than I originally planned, but hopefully it will be a bit better. So to help you see it yourself, please, if you brought a Bible, open up to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. Last week we were in uh, the book of Genesis, but we were in chapter 27, and we got to meet two brothers, twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older twin, and so thus he had the, the birthright. He was the firstborn, which meant when dad would eventually die, Esau would assume the mantle of leadership for the, the household, for the family operation. However, as we saw last week, Jacob, the younger twin, tricked, manipulated his brother into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew, and then later disguised himself so that he might trick his dad in receiving the blessing that was supposed to go to the firstborn. Well, today we get to come back to Jacob. 
But Jacob is a little different. He's not a 40-year-old trickster any longer. He's now much older. He's received a different name. Back in Genesis 35, you'll see him wrestle with this angel in the middle of the night. And through that, he receives this different name. All of you know the name, even if you don't know the Bible. The name is Israel. So now you know where the nation gets their name. And Israel has 12 sons. You heard that correct. Not just 12 children, 12 sons. Now, women, before you start freaking out, like the poor woman, all right, he had four wives, all right? I don't recommend that, all right? You find yourself one, stick with that one, but he had four. Now, he did fall in love with one first. I think his original plan was to just have one wife, but you can read his whole crazy story starting back in 28 and all the way up through to 37 to where we're at. But he had this one wife that she was his favorite. That's the one he fell in love with. However, she couldn't have children. And he ends up with these other wives, and they're popping out sons left and right. And eventually, the favorite wife, Rachel, ends up getting pregnant and has a son. Well, dad, who's now been renamed Israel, is super elated. And so his favorite wife has had a son, so that son becomes his favorite now, you, you, you'd think that Jacob would know that that's not good parenting. Like, dads don't have a favorite. It, it affects the other kids. And Jacob should know from experience because his dad had a favorite. And the favorite's name was Esau. And, and, and so you would think he'd learn his lesson. Like, okay, that, that wasn't good. I didn't like being second best. I, I didn't like being just mama's boy. Like, I kind of wish dad had the same feelings for me that he did for Esau. So I'm going to do things differently. But he didn't. He not only made the same mistake of having a favorite, he wasn't nearly as subtle about it like his father. He advertises it out to everyone. This is my favorite son. And that's what we see in the beginning of chapter 37. So join me at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, a couple of uh, Jacob's wives, and his, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. All right, so as we're in a series called Christmas Clothes, what was the Christmas gift that dad gave his son that advertised, this is my favorite boy? A coat. A coat. And how is it described? Many colors. Right? A number of you, you know this story because you grew up in church. But some of you, even if you didn't grow up in church, you know the story because you've happened to see the musical or the movie, the Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat starring Donny Osmond. Right? Some people know this and, and love it. They, they know this story. And yet, turns out, we don't have full confidence that his coat was really all that colorful. You see, it turns out that the Hebrew word there that's used it's the only place in all of Scripture that it's, that it's used. And so it may be that that word really means that like the sleeves are extra long. Some translations have that. 
could be that it was just an extra long length. Maybe it was embroidered in a special way, or maybe it was like some really fine material. Now, the reason most translations say that it was colored is because of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And whoever translated the, the, the Hebrew into Greek, they're the ones who used a Greek word indicating that it was colored. And so while we don't know what the original Hebrew word truly meant, we're relying heavily on the translators of the Septuagint because they said it was colored. So most likely it was colored, but we're not completely confident. And that's okay. Because it doesn't matter if it had many colors or if it was fancily embroidered, if it was extra long or extra short. All we know is that it was set up where he receives this special robe to differentiate him from the rest of the brothers. That's the main point, is that he is the favorite. Now, my original plan for today was to focus on this coat. I, I think that this colored coat does a beautiful job of helping point us to Jesus, and I think it could help us to worship him during this Advent season. However, as I began to study, before I even began to write anything down, I, I came across a couple of sources that pointed out that clothing is all over the story of Joseph. And that surprised me. And so I, I want to point out these clothes to you, but to do so, let's just take a moment and capture the story of Joseph so we can see where these clothing are and how they fit in his story. Now, we're in Genesis 37. Uh, his story goes all the way through chapter 50. But really, we could just take his story and just call it a four-chapter story. Right? Chapter 1 is, is right here. He's at home. He's living with mom and dad. Uh, he he's gets this coat. His brothers hate him. Uh, not only because he's the favorite, but if you notice there in verse 2, he's a tattletale. Right? He's, he's reporting on his brothers, making them look bad so that he looks good. And, and then we find out later, if we kept reading, he had a couple of dreams, and he tells everybody his dreams. And the dreams obviously point out that, that it, he thinks that they're all going to bow down to him like he's going to become their king or something. So they cannot stand this teenager. And so there comes this moment where the, the brothers are out caring for the shepherds, they're having lunch, and all of a sudden they see Joseph in the distance walking towards them. And they're like, oh, there's that troublemaker. There's that idiot. That's, well, let's just get rid of him. And so they start putting together this plan to kill him. One of the brothers speaks up, no, 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 we, we, we shouldn't kill him. I mean, he is our brother after all. And so they decide to throw him in a pit, trying to figure out what to do when some slave traders come by, and they sell him off. Some of you, you're really nervous right now about family stuff at Christmas, but hey, I doubt your family's going to sell you off into human trafficking, right? Th like, this is like major problems. This is a major dysfunction of a family, but it launches him into chapter two. Chapter two for Joseph is slavery. He, he ends up uh, uh, becoming a slave to Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian uh, official who worked under the Pharaoh. And, and it ends up coming out that Potiphar sees that Joseph's this uh, remarkable young man and so he lets him kind of just take over as the head slave in the house. Well, Potiphar's wife also notices Joseph, thinks this strapping young man should serve her in the bedroom. And when he resists, she gets angry and accuses him of trying to come at her. And so Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. That launches him into chapter 3. While in prison, he once again begins to just serve, becomes helpful, and they begin to kind of let him run the prison. 
And while in there, a couple of guys have some crazy dreams. Well, remember back in chapter 37, he had some dreams. So he's like, hey, tell me your dreams. I I like dreams. So they tell him, and he's like, oh, I I think I know what that means. So he interprets their dreams for them, and sure enough, both dreams come true. So when a couple years later, the pharaoh himself of Egypt ends up having this crazy dream. It, It involves skinny, ugly cows swallowing up big, thick, rich, fat cows, and he doesn't know what this means. And, and so one of the guys goes, oh, oh Mr. Pharaoh, um, I, remember when you threw me in prison? There was this dude down there who I had a dream, and he, he told me what it meant, and it came true. Maybe you could ask him what your dream means? And so the Pharaoh has Joseph come out of prison. Prese- you know, he, he tells the dream. He hears the, the uh, interpretation. Pharaoh's so impressed, he ends up saying, why don't we put you in charge? Because that dream meant they were going to have seven years of famine. So they're going to have seven really good years and seven years bad years. And so he puts Joseph in charge of of collecting the food over the seven good years. And we're going to end up needing that for those seven bad years. And that launches into chapter four. So we see Joseph, second in command of all of Egypt, overseeing this food distribution program. But the famine was so bad, it stretched all the way back to his homeland ended up affecting his dad, his brothers, everybody. And so they hear word that Egypt has food. And so the brothers begin to make their way down. And when they come before Joseph, they don't know it's their brother. I mean, first of all, he wasn't speaking their language. He was speaking Egyptian. Second, he's probably wearing Egyptian garb, so he looks completely different. But third, No one expects someone that you've sold off to slavery to, first of all, have survived this long, but second of all, to become the second in command. So they do not recognize their brother at all. But he recognizes them. Long story short, he ends up testing them, realizes they've changed. He ends up making himself known to them. There's this reunion, and they they go back home. They get dad and everybody, and they move to Egypt, and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, What I was missing was that in each of those chapters, there's a little story about clothing. In chapter uh, chapter one, we we know that. That's this colorful robe. But in chapter two, when Potiphar's wife goes to grab onto him to pull him into the bedroom, he struggles and and pulls away, and she ends up pulling them off. Whether it's just the outer tunic or, or all of his clothes, but he flees, he runs, and she's left with his clothes. That's what she uses the evidence, saying, he tried to come at me. And that's what Potiphar sees. Well, man, his clothes are here. He must have tried it. And that's what gets him thrown into prison. Then in chapter three of his life, remember how the Pharaoh calls for him? He's been in prison for several years. He's got the scraggly beard. Probably he's been wearing the same exact clothes, so they're dirty, grungy. Who knows if they have holes? So they clean him up. Give him a bath, give him a shave, and they give him new clothes so that he could come and stand before the Pharaoh. Now, if you had said, Aaron, got a quiz for you. There's clothing in Joseph's story. In the four different chapters, what is the clothing in each? Now, I would have gotten number one right away. No problem. Number two, uh, I had to think about it, but oh, yeah, 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 that's right. The, the Potiphar's wife held on to the clothes. I, I probably would have gotten that one. Chapter three, oh, that one would have been harder. I, I, I might have gotten there, but I, I don't know that I would have. 
But the clothing in chapter 4, you could have given me hours to think about it. And I, I wouldn't have ever thought of it without going and consulting the text. And so if you wouldn't know what it is, I'm right there with you. So I want, I want you to see it for yourself. So flip over to chapter 45. Chapter 45 in Genesis. What we're about to read is happening just right after uh, he has made himself known to his brothers. There's this big happy reunion, a lot of tears. Word gets to Pharaoh that Joseph's family has found him, and they're all like, super excited. Uh, and, and so they, um, uh, uh, Joseph, uh, so the Pharaoh says to Joseph, like, hey, tell your brothers to go home, get your dad, get everybody, and bring them down here. We'll give them the finest land. I mean, the, the Pharaoh thinks Joseph is awesome. This, he loves this dude. And so, hey, your family's here. Big family reunion. This is going to make a great Hallmark movie. Bring him down and we'll, we'll get him established. And, and so that's what's happening. So if they're going to head home, remember there's a famine. They're going to need food. They're going to need water. And so he's trying to outfit them for the journey home, but also so they can make their way back to them. And I want you to notice what he gives them in verse 22. Genesis 45, verse 22. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, how could he, Joseph, go and make the same mistake his dad did? He's showing favoritism to Benjamin. There's an explanation. Benjamin is his only fully biological brother. Mom first had Joseph. And then she gave birth to Benjamin, and when she did, she died. And so there's this extra special bond between Joseph and his baby brother. That's why he gives him the extra. But what I want you to notice is that he gives all of them clothing. He doesn't give them revenge. He gives them a wardrobe. He, he doesn't turn them into slaves like they did to him. Instead, he becomes almost like their slave and serves them and provides for them. He, he, he doesn't seek to use his power to take for himself. He's using his power to give, to care, to love. Now, Joseph's story, as I said, it, it continues on. It, it continues on through chapter 50. But this is kind of like a, a murder mystery. You know, when you read a murder mystery, you, you, you come to this point in the story where the mystery is solved but there's still usually like a concluding chapter or two as things settle to that satisfying close. That's what's happening here. But from here on out, it's the boys getting home, getting dad, they move, the reunion between you know, Jacob and Joseph, and, and, and it's just this little bit of a settling of the story. For most practical purposes, Joseph's story, though, is, is done, which means his story starts with clothing, and ends with clothing. It starts with him receiving a robe because he is favored, and it ends with him giving clothing because his brothers are forgiven and favored. I don't know about you, but I am in awe of God's artistry. That as an, as an artist, he would write literature in such a way that this key figure, his story starts with clothes and ends with clothes. But I think it's completely fair for you to stop and go, yeah, but how does this help me worship Jesus at Christmas? As I shared originally, I was going to uh, focus on that, that robe uh, that he got, that, that amazing coat. 
because just as Papa Israel gave his favorite son this beautiful, colorful coat, I, I wanted to point out that if you are a follower of Jesus, your heavenly father gives you a beautiful, colorful, spiritual cloak. That, that it's colored with his love and his grace, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his character, his presence, his power, that he has clothed you in Christ. We saw that last week in Galatians chapter 4. But I want you to see that it wasn't just a one-off type of idea in Galatians. It's also in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. The Apostle Paul writes that, we are to, that, that if you are in Christ, you have put on the new self. We, we saw last week that in Galatians it says to put on, but it can also be translated to be clothed with. Right? So we are clothed with the new self. What is this new self? It's created after the likeness of God. Well, who is in the likeness of God? Jesus. He's the visible image of the invisible God. So we are being made into the likeness of Jesus, which is in true righteousness and holiness. If you follow Jesus at the deepest core of who you are, despite what you've done, despite your past, despite your worries, despite what's happening now, at the deepest core, the Father has robed you in righteousness. He has clothed you with Christ. He is creating a new person in you. This isn't just to make you look good on the outside. This is to change you from the inside. This is the fundamental truth of who you are in Christ. Some of you, you need to hear that. God is not defining you based upon your worst moment. He defines you, he sees you with the cloak of Christ that is over you and around you, that's covering you, cleansing you. It's this new cloak that allows you to come into the presence of not just a pharaoh, but of a king who's not just there to test you to make sure you know enough, who no, who's showered you. He's done it all for you. That's what I wanted so many of you to get to hear today, that your heavenly father gives you robes of righteousness. And despite what is happening around you, that is who he wants you to be. That's who he sees you to be. But this week I realized that if that's what we did with our sermon today, it's, it's biblically accurate. It's a beautiful theological truth, but there is a risk in it. It, it runs the risk of, of setting a trap for us that so many Christians, including myself, fall into. So often when we read the Bible, we insert ourselves into the story. And, and so in this case, we see that just as Joseph received this robe from his father, we receive spiritual clothes from our heavenly father. And so therefore, we are Joseph. But I don't think God wrote this story about Joseph with you first and foremost in mind. Yes, it's about you, but you're not Joseph. This past week, uh, maybe it was a week before, I, I started a, a new book. Uh, I usually try and read a chapter or so in the, in the scriptures each morning, and then uh, I usually have another book and read a section out of it. And the, the book I just started is called The Christ Key. And you know it's a good book because the author's last name is Bird. Uh, Chad Bird uh, writes this book, and in the introduction, I'm only in about chapter one, maybe I'm up to chapter two, but in, in the introduction, he, he says that basically the Bible is not a collection of independent stories. 
nor is it a collection of just a bunch of independent books, that it is all one tied together narrative. And so what that means is that earlier stories will get called upon by later stories, that there will be certain events, certain things that happen, and, and you're to become so familiar with the scriptures that it calls back to those to pull them up. And it helps you to understand this newer story, but it also sometimes helps to explain the previous story, which means sometimes you use the scriptures to help interpret itself. And so the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is able and capable to help like, interpret Genesis, the first book. And, and how Joshua and Judges can help you understand certain things in Exodus. And, and how, you know, maybe 1 Samuel explains something from Judges. And, and, and Daniel from 1 Samuel and on and on. Until you eventually get to this place where you're at the Gospels and you're at Christ. Because ultimately, he is the key to unlock the beauty and the power of the Old Testament. In, in Luke chapter 24... Jesus has, has risen from the dead, but he's not made himself seen and appeared to all of his disciples yet. And there are these two, two guys. They would consider themselves part of, of disciples of Jesus, but they, they, they weren't part of the 12. And these two guys are, are walking on, to, on the road to this little community called Emmaus. And, and they've heard what's happening. They, they know that Jesus has died, but now the women have come back that morning. And they've said that they saw an angel, and this angel said Jesus was risen from the dead, and there was no body. But, I mean, we all know you can't trust the word of a woman, and no one rises from the dead. That was a joke, by the way. That, that's what they thought. <laughs> and so they're so confused. And as they're walking, along comes Jesus. But again, you don't expect someone to rise from the dead, so they don't recognize him. They just think he's some stranger walking along. And when he starts asking them, like, what, what's going on, guys? They're like, you haven't heard? So they explain the whole thing to him. And it says in Luke 24 that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he begins calling back to those Hebrew scriptures. He goes back to the earlier stories, back to the earlier teachings, and he begins to interpret and help them see how all of it pointed to him. He was the fulfillment of all that was there. That means all of the scriptures, all of it is pointing at Christ. That's why in the uh, Geneva Bible, it's an old, old, old study Bible. Uh, it was actually predates the King James. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote this in the preface. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Christ. He was firmly convinced that all of the scriptures, even the law and the prophets, pointed to Jesus. That idea, that concept, heavily influenced a seminary professor named Ed Clowney. And Ed taught Christ-centric preaching in his classes. One of his students was a kid by the name of Tim Keller. And Tim took that to heart and began to preach over and over how it all points to Jesus, which is what led Tim to call Jesus the true and better. Tim is famous for saying that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and, obedi and his obedience was imputed to us. That Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar, to go and create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not only offered up by his father on the mount, but who is truly sacrificed by his father on the mount. 
And so that means that Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Not you. Not me. Jesus. Because Jesus is the favored son. Helps when you're the only begotten son. But he's the favored son who went into slavery, as it says in Philippians 2, but rose up to be at the right hand of the, the king, who forgives us of our betrayal and who clothes us in his righteousness. I don't want you walking out today thinking that Joseph simply points to you. It does, but it goes so much farther, so much deeper, and it's far more beautiful. Ultimately, it points to Jesus. He's Joseph. He's your true brother. He's your true king. It's him who, through his sacrifice on the cross, did it for you so that he might change you from the inside out. So this means if you are a follower of Jesus, this should help to humble you, to awe you, to lead you to want to worship him this Christmas season. Because you have been fashioned with forgiveness. You have been given a righteous robe. You have been clothed with Christ. And it is arrayed with beautiful colors of God's love and grace and presence and goodness. But this also is an invitation that if you are not a follower of Jesus, you, this Christmas, can come and give your life to him. Most people, when they realize that this whole story about Jesus is true, that God the Son came down as a baby at Christmas to go on and live a perfect, sinless life, and yet he went and died like the worst criminal. But by doing so, he paid the penalty that humanity should have paid. Joseph's brothers totally deserved to be punished for their actions. And yet, brother forgives them. Your brother, the true human, the true Adam, imputes his obedience, his righteousness to you. You just need to accept it. Most people, when they realize the truth of this, they can't help but to pray. And so if you would, would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, we pause right now to say thank you for Jesus to you, Jesus, yourself, we say thank you for coming. Thank you for entering into this world as a full human. You experienced everything we have, and yet you were also God. You were the only one who could go to that cross and pay for sin because your sin did not need paid for it. You had none. And it's through your selfless act that we can be forgiven of our betrayal, of our sin. So Lord, I pray right now for the person, whether they're in this room, they're online, or they're listening to the podcast later, that they would surrender themselves to you. That they would let you be their king. You be their Lord. You be the one who paid for them. Lord, hear them now as they pray, as they confess, as they give themselves to you. Father God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have allowed the, the, 
the reality of your spiritual clothing to be put upon them. And yet while that is the true reality spiritually, emotionally they're experiencing something very, very different. Whether it be because of their own sin or because of, of things that have been done to them or things that have happened around them or just even the, the doubts that they are wrestling with. Father, I pray that you would help them to see not just a precious baby and celebrate Christmas, but they would see a risen Lord, one who went to a cross for them. And because of his action, their sin is forgiven. Lord, help them to see that is the reality. And let that reality shape their emotions. Let that reality shape their behavior. Let that reality help them to forgive themselves, to forgive the others, and for some of them to even forgive you. Because even though you have never done anything wrong, sometimes in our twisted minds we think you have. So God, right now, would you hear us confess? admitting that, that we've misunderstood or we've done it our own way. Would you hear us as we just allow the forgiveness of our true king to wash over us and let us be reminded of the true spiritual clothing we wear. So Jesus, the true and better Joseph, the one who went through slavery, the one who became obedient even to death, death on a cross, to become exalted and lifted up, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to reign and rule over all, including us. To you be the glory forever and ever. Help us to now worship you worship you in truth, to worship you because of your grace, to, to worship you because of who you are and what you've done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we want to move into a time of communion to give you a chance to respond. This is your chance to continue to confess. It's your chance to celebrate what Christ has done. It's your chance to just connect with your Father because he went to the absolute utmost he gave his one and only son for you. Jesus is the favored one. You are favored too. Just as Joseph gave clothing to all of his brothers, God gives spiritual clothing to you. And so as you come to these communion elements, may you take them with thankfulness. But may you also take them with humbleness. May you take them with, with a worshipful heart. And so this is your time to spend with him. If you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I, I'm just going to ask that you respectfully not go to these elements. It's not because we are trying to deprive you from something. We just think God has something more important for you. The most important thing is not whether or not you take a wafer and have some juice. It's, is this story about Jesus true? Did God really come down to earth? Did, did the Son really take on human flesh? Did, did Jesus really live the only sinless life that's ever been lived and yet go and die in the sinner's place? Because if that story is true, it changes everything. And God right now is inviting you to take this time to not worry about elements, but to, to, to take this and pray to give yourself to him. But even if you're a first-time guest here, 
and you know the story and this is a part of who you are, we invite you to come. Because God's working right now. There's some things you need to deal with. And so come, receive these elements. So at, at any time during the song, feel free to get up, make your way to the elements, bring them back to, to your chair. If you need to stand and sing, if you need to kneel on the floor, if you just need some quiet time, this is your time to deal with God because he loves you, he's for you. And I want you to be able to worship him freely and fully this Christmas. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.